Are you accusing me of manipula of uh not manipulating? I'm saying that you have Jesus a large personality Christ. and you're very organized. Monopolizing the conversation. I just totally fucking went blank on that one. This could be a could be an ugly episode. <laughs> oh, maybe I should pull up the old memory alfalfa. <laughs> Uh, this episode has a name, and I don't fucking know what it is. Um, Far From Home. Oh, fuck, yeah, I should have remembered the Spider-Man. Spider-Pig, Spider-Pig, does whatever (laughs) Spider-Pig does. (laughs) I really need to go back and watch all the Simpsons. (laughs) I do as well. That's a lot of content. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd have more time if I wasn't having to watch this stupid fucking show all the time. I didn't make you watch this stupid fucking show all the time. Warden? Let's just make it clear. Nobody is making anybody watch any stupid fucking shows. Just want to point that out there. I have morbid curiosity at this point. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just, um, let me get through my... Well, look, we need to get the show on the road. It's supposed to drop below freezing tonight, and uh, I don't want the parasitic ice to overwhelm me. I'm not used to large polar fronts coming down through the Midwest and tickling my taint. <laughs> okay. I think I'm ready. <sighs> what shall we talk about? <laughs> Let me uh, take a quick glance over this. Glance over this what? Uh, The teaser in Act 1. Just a so, you mean the whole time you were bitching about me reading my notes, you could have instead been reading this summary that you're now reading after I finished and I'm ready to go? No. That about right? The whole time Warden was bitching about your notes, I could have been reading this. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, everybody shut up. I'm going to try the intro. Bring us in, Joe Bob. Prepare yourself. For sheer fucking hubris. Fucking hubris. Hello, and welcome to Sheer Fucking Hubris, a podcast started by three buddies and Star Trek fans who watch an episode of Star Trek Discovery each week and then proceed to talk about it on this podcast, break it down, and generally just have some fun. I am Joe Bob. I'm joined today. <laughs> Jesus, man, how bad are your notes? It must be a jumbled mess. By Mr. Willie. Hello. And Biblio Warden. Yup. And this week we watched Season 3, Episode 2, Homecoming? Far from home? Yeah, far away home. Long way home. Far from home. Thank you, Warden. And, uh, I still don't understand the red lights. Why did they all show up at once? (laughs) A week before? I got that we went back in time and made them appear when they appeared to everybody, but they appeared at first all seven at once. How did that happen? Uh, I believe if you listen to Zorba the Greek in this episode, he kind of talked a little bit about time travel. And seemed to have very intricate knowledge of it for a damn Firefly character. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe maybe that was common knowledge, and so they were able to pick up on all that. 
Okay, Willie. I appreciate that explanation that made no goddamn sense whatsoever. Should have fit <laughs> right in. Alright, well then, you know what? Fuck it, we'll just talk about season three then. <laughs> the reason that all seven appeared at the same time was because when they set out to write season two, they were going to address all seven. When they got to the final episode, somebody counted up and was like, uh, Glenn, we've only done five. He's like, ah, fuck me. Alright, we're going to send one on our way out and then one later. Boom. Is that better? No, no. Not in any way. Um, <laughs> okay. So, Home on the Range. I thought that this episode was alright. Mm-hmm. It's got the structure and the backbone of what I would consider a good Star Trek episode. Then, you know, it's discovered up. I didn't hate this episode. Honestly, to me, if, if you took out the last, I'd say, one minute, it almost felt like a Star Trek episode. We've got a malfunction in our ship somewhere. We're going to have to try and solve the issue. We're going to need to go barter with some locals or, or get creative to find what we need. And then we're going to bust the ship out, roll credits. Yep. And really, up until the tractor beam. But other than that, I didn't hate it. There were parts of it that I rolled my eyes at, but um, I didn't hate it. Warren, what'd you think? Um, it wasn't bad. And just to play off of something that Willie was saying about everything being a mystery again, you know, we get Burnham appearing at the end. She said, you know, I've been here for a year. Okay, that's interesting because that means now Burnham is a bit of a mystery and she's kind of been an open book all this time. She has the room to maybe be an interesting character now. I'm also wondering because that first episode was called a part one and then we didn't actually get part two. I wonder if we're going to work toward that. And the first episode of season four will be part two. Have they released the names of all the episodes for this season? They have. And part two is not listed at all? It is not. No. Okay. I really hope they don't try to do like the two viewpoint. If you get some Burnham on her own and and then you get some Burnham with Discovery and then you get some Discovery on its own. Because this show has not done a great job of juggling multiple plots at once. You don't want some of that meaty, delicious Witcher action where you don't know what fucking time it is one episode to the next? No, Warden. I love some of that meaty, delicious Witcher action. (laughs) Because it was done in a way that worked. If the writers for Star Trek Discovery has shown me any level of competence, even approaching that of the people that wrote The Witcher... I'd be like, okay. I kind of liked the way that they did a full episode with Burnham on a full episode with this crew. Mm -hmm. You have to ask yourself, why did they create that one-year lag anyway? I think they're going to try to be doing some flashbacks as they go along to try and world build instead of them all just jumping in. Yeah. This way, we'll have plenty of expository dumps so that we're getting some of that world building. And I guess that's not a terrible way to do it. Because how else are you going to introduce a timeline a thousand years from where you just left? Not only that, but it gives you an opportunity to have a fish-out-of-water story, but one where the main character is the one that's being the guide. Because she's been here a year, she should presumably be familiar enough with 31st century technology. It's going to appear like she can integrate herself seamlessly since she's done it for a year. Mm -hmm. She'll be able to competently direct the crew through, I guess, the 32nd century? Yeah. Without the crew having to make mistakes and look like idiots the way that they did all throughout this episode. Mm -hmm. I felt similarly to you guys. It didn't suck. 
what is it people say about like a when they look at a house it's got good bones or something like that mm-hmm. this is like walking into a house that just looks atrocious but it's got good bones right i don't literally think it looks terrible i'm talking about the fingerprints of star trek discovery that are all over this episode mm. like tilly like tilly for example tilly was so fucking annoying in this episode see i didn't get that but let me tell you why do you remember how tilly acted when they went to orion town where they were trying to find the volcanoes and she like held a gun to somebody's head and was like you talk to my captain again like that you're gonna be spitting gum out through your forehead and i was like god damn how does tilly act like that when she's so socially inept yeah Mm -hmm. I made the statement that Tilly had multiple personality disorder or something because she could just turn it on when she had to in season one and act like a psychopath. It makes no goddamn sense that she was so useless through any of the confrontational part of this episode. Granted, the way she acted is probably more the way she would have acted. But since you have established she can dig down and pull out this pretend badass streak. Yeah. That's largely why Tilly annoyed me. The other reason is, I don't think it makes any fucking sense that Saru picks her to go along. No, that's what I was going to say. Why would you have picked her and not Nod or Giorgio or anybody who could have brought something more to the table than fumbling through words? It's hard for me to think of a character whose name we know who would not have been a better choice than Tilly. Even Gene that was cleaning up the Leland. (laughs) Yeah, shovel technology has not advanced much over the years, has it? (laughs) Why could the robots not come pick it up? Do they only clean up the flip trays in the mess hall? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I understand where you guys are coming from with the whole Tilly thing. I just was relieved to see her behaving in a way that was significantly less like a caricature. They have walked it back some. I agree on that one. Yeah, she's not a cartoon character. It wasn't necessarily that I hated her personality as much. I just hated the fact that there's no fucking way she would be on that away mission. And even if I thought it was stupid, they did establish that she can get that shit under control when you gotta pull it together. Yeah, I get that. But they forgot that they wrote that. Right. I almost sprayed my Pepsi all over the place when she was referred to as a good impression. I thought you guys would enjoy that. I thought it was goddamn ridiculous. The part that I enjoyed was when she was stammering through some sort of explanation and JoJo says, do we need to get the command training program manual out to help you find the fucking point? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, thank you. She is speaking for us. The thing that I actually cracked up at for sure was citing of regulation 256.15. Officers will show professional behavior at all times. (laughs) I heard that and I'm like, okay, so the writers are saying, Willie, Warden, Joe Bob, we know she's an unprofessional pain in the ass. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> they may have mentioned it. They didn't do a great job of uh, fixing it, though. Yeah. Well, it's theoretically early. Isn't that what you said in season two? Ah! Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember you saying something like, I don't find Tilly as annoying, but I have the foreknowledge of what she's becoming. I misremembered, apparently. Fair enough. Do we want to wade through all the techno babble to start off this episode? Because I feel like everybody on this ship, when and if they need it, has a very intricate working knowledge of how everything on the ship operates. And so we figure out that the only possible reason that all this could be happening was some kind of plasma manifold that had ruptured or something, right? <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, really? That It's got to be that? Anybody, whether you're a doctor, an engineer... 
tactical officer. It seems like everybody knows how to go out and work on these things if they need to. Let me tell you something that frustrates me a lot. And I, I just want to scream it every two or three minutes in this episode. Stamets is not a fucking engineer. <laughs> he is a mushroom farmer. An astromycologist. Why are we pretending he's the best goddamn engineer on the ship? I don't think we are anymore. It kind of seemed like it was critical for him to get back to finding the problem, and he is the one that found the malfunctioning EPS conduit, and he is the one that went and fixed it. Yeah, I think you're right. I I think they're just kind of trying to convert him over to an engineer. (sighs) I don't... Where's the chief engineer? Does it bug you at all that they still talk about how Discovery is a science vessel, but yet for like two years on this show, we made it every bit of battleship whenever it needed to be? Right. You know, they commented on it again, like, oh, we're a science vessel. The thing that gets me is the science vessel has a lot of fucking engineers on it. I mean, it seems like everybody on the ship was referred to as an engineer in this episode. (laughs) And that drove me fucking crazy. It was like the writers knew. I'm sitting there yelling at my TV that Stamets is not a fucking engineer. And they just wanted to rub it in my face because they kept saying, Ah, just ask one of the other engineers. Why are you taking me to do this? Because you're an engineer. Why can't we get another engineer? Bro, Hura, fix this. You're an engineer. You got all these goddamn engineers on the ship. Why the fuck is Stamets? Well, and they even refer to Giorgio as an engineer. Yeah, Giorgio's apparently a brilliant engineer. Um, I I do kind of want to go back. Yeah, let's just start at the beginning. How about this crash landing? Now, granted, I only got one watch of this episode in, but I'm still not totally sure how all of that made sense and why it was necessary to flip the ship on its head to take the heat when you could have just diverted shields that way and why firing graviton beams at the ice made your landing site. (laughs) I'm still not totally sure what the hell happened. I'm just, I'm taking it on faith that we obviously did the right things to crash land on this planet because none of that made any sense and it all happened so quickly. And by the way, if Control somehow made it into Detmer's eyepiece, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that. <laughs> well, let's not get ahead of us. Well, no, we, we're not getting ahead. It was in, like, the opening scene. Well, that's true. That's true. And that was exactly what I thought. I'm like, oh my god, it's, it's like fucking Seven of Nines eyepiece thingy. Maybe this will be the tie-in to Picard, and, and Control will actually be existent in the future, and they need... Um, uh, Data's daughter to build the the portal so that they can come back in time to wipe out sentient life. Maybe this is like the grand revenge plan. So, there are a few ways they could take the Detmer thing. The simplest one that makes the most sense and is the most human and cerebral could just be that she is experiencing some sort of PTSD. Mm. And for all the reasons I just said, that it would be make sense and be a human moment in cerebral <laughs> it's the least likely that they will do it <laughs> so the other things that i think are possible is it could just be that her implant is damaged and it's fucking up could be the control infiltrated it and she's about to be taken over and be a borg could be that arium somehow at some point sent her some of her mm-hmm. consciousness interesting or it could be that discovery slash the sphere is somehow trying to make contact with her. Ah. Because we've established, and by established, I'm using finger quotes because that word means that it happened 
we didn't say how it was fucking possible. <laughs> but we have, quote unquote, established that artificial intelligence can take over people through a series of flashes at your eyes. You know, that's actually a good point. If the sphere which we have established is self-aware at this point and has bound with discovery, are we not going to get a Knight Rider spinoff to where, like, the ship should have helped them figure out what the <laughs> hell's going on? Like, shouldn't it have been like, I don't know, I'm feeling a little nimbly-bimbly on Deck 8 right now. <laughs> Maybe you could go down there and check on the plasma manifolds for me. There's a chill blowing on my taint down in Deck 8. <laughs> That's right. You need to go check my underbelly. <laughs> I, the amount of awareness and self-preservation that would have been required to throw up your shields when Enterprise was shooting photon torpedoes at Discovery, it should absolutely try to somehow save itself during this. Indeed. The cool way to have done it would have been when they came to the wormhole, everybody passes out, and then they all come to, and instead of them in the middle of a crash, like they're in a stable orbit around this planet. Yeah. And they're like, what the? It just happened, you know? Makes you wonder if they forgot that that intelligence is there. It really makes you feel like they forgot about it. You're absolutely right, Warden. Or, and I've I've made this analogy before in this show, maybe the sphere is like Slim Pickens, and he was wanting to just ride Discovery singing Yeehaw the whole way down. We don't know. (laughs) We're clearly making a space western here, so maybe (laughs) that's what they're going for. You know how in... um science fiction movies ships don't want to go into asteroid fields yes why because discoveries <laughs> like just plowing through them because the odds are not in your favor never tell me the odds yeah one asteroid takes out an entire bridge of a star destroyer but they just turn into gravel against discovery why do you think that discovery at terminal velocity can fly through a fucking asteroid and come out on the other side without a scratch, hit the goddamn ground at who knows how many hundred kilometers an hour, and the hull's just fine, but ice is going to crush it. Parasitic ice. It's not going to crush it, it's going to eat it alive. That's not what they said. They said it's going to crush it. They did say crush it. I'm like, this hull? I, I, I wonder if that was kind of a tip of the cap to Voyager. Remember the Voyager time travel episode where the ship crash landed on an ice planet in a glacier? No. I don't. Oh. I'm not doubting that exists. I just... So, Harry Kim and Chakotay travel back in time to find Discovery. Voyager, it... yeah. Oh, sorry, Voyager, yeah. Crashed on a glacier planet. They get in there and all they find are like skeletons of the crew because they're like, did anyone survive? They're like, of course no one fucking survived that impact. What are you talking about? The science is, is clear. Everyone is dead. Died on impact. (laughs) Jacob. Moron Jacob. Oh, it's good. Real good. Yeah, and so they went back and they changed Harry Kim's fuck up that caused Discovery. That caused Voyager to crash in the ice. Okay. It was when they were trying out the quantum slipstream drive that apparently is a thing now in the 32nd century. Anyway. Let me back it up a little bit. Obviously, we decided to sign on Nan for a futuristic contract. And in her contract, it's still stipulated that she has to be the only crew member who wears a skirt. (laughs) But we're going to put her in charge of getting the ship back up. Why would you put a security officer in charge of that? Because engineers don't know how to manage themselves. (laughs) you got to have one slave driver. You know that. (laughs) Got you there. 
Yep, yep, he nailed it. So they put Nod in charge of, of this repair, and they find out about the parasitic ice and all that. Her and Giorgio have that chat. Like, why is Giorgio not handcuffed to somebody at this point? It's like, fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> but, I mean, she keeps doing this. But I have an issue because in season two, they were downplaying all the psychopath elements of her character. Yeah. And they were trying to, like, work her more towards a redemption story. And I didn't really care for what they did with her in this one, where she just sort of seemed completely unhinged. That could also be one of those responses to criticism thing, because I know a lot of people are like, why are we acting like Giorgio's not a space Nazi? She's a Terran Emperor. So it could be that they're walking back on that. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, the parasitic ice, that's one of those things where I'm talking about You've got the basics of a good episode, but you discover it up. Yeah. Why does the ice need to be parasitic? Why couldn't it just been regular ice? Why does it need to be parasitic? And also, here's something that I that, that kind of bugs me, maybe about this planet. Well, no, hold on, hold I, on, Willie. I guess I guess may, maybe we presume. Hold on, Willie. Let me let me. No, 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 no. Let me make my point. No, no. Let I, me. I, I, I started no, the no, point no, first. Eat a dick. I'm doing it. <laughs> We can argue like technology has changed in a thousand years, but these planets are billions of years old. I mean, unless we have jumped to like the Delta Quadrant, or it doesn't make any sense that a thousand years would have changed these planets so much so that we can't tell where we are anymore. Unless the implication is that we are so far away from anything we ever knew, both in time and location. I, I think that is the implication. I, they, I... No, I don't. I don't think that's the implication. I think it's just that they didn't have sensors and they didn't necessarily recognize the planet, not because it had been geologically changed, naturally changed, but maybe because it had been terraformed. I just think it's new to them. (laughs) Okay, maybe the terraforming thing is the only one I I would go for because you still have an all-knowing entity in your databanks, plus you still have all of your previous knowledge before you jumped. I feel like you would have at least charted, like, somebody like Saru would have known, like, wait a minute, I, I swear I remember hearing about a planet that had parasitic ice, you know, when I was at the Academy. It was such and such, mm-hmm. you know? Well. But think about it. I, I assume if we are to believe that Burnham and Discovery landed around the same place, because she did say I landed here a year ago, right? Yeah. Okay, you know that the Tellarites and the Andorians and the Orions, they're all still around. To me, the implication is that we are, in fact, in a known location. Yeah, the Corbinites are established race, too, so we're not far away. No, I don't think we're very far away, so I guess I don't understand how they have no idea what these near planets are. Well, if they'd have stayed for the nighttime, then they could have charted it by the stars, I guess. Maybe so. You know, there's, there's no real functional reason for the ice to have to be parasitic. You could have done the same thing with just normal ice. You could have said, as it gets colder, it's going to continue to crystallize around our hull, and this glacier is not entirely stable, and we're starting to sink into it. And They wouldn't even have to explain it that much. I mean, Just say life support well, was going to fail. Yeah, life support's going to yeah. fail if we don't fix these relays. <laughs> they do it in the new Lost in Space. <laughs> they said, the ice seems to grow faster. In the shade. I'm like, you know what else does that? Real fucking ice. Ice. (laughs) But instead, you concoct this bullshit parasitic ice that makes no goddamn sense just because it sounded cooler. (sighs) This is the thing that's so frustrating about Discovery. Like, you could just just make it ice. 
Let's make it make more goddamn sense. But whatever. Whatever. We've landed. We're going to explore wherever we are. This level from Mist. Yeah, and this is not a discovery thing. This is a modern sci-fi thing. Why do all alien planets have to look like the cover of a Yes album now? I don't understand. What is a Yes album? It's a music group. They have weird psychedelic covers with like islands floating in the sky and crap like that. It's... <laughs> We we have left my wheelhouse. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't listen to them either. I've just seen the covers. Uh, come on, let's bring it roundabout back to what we know, Warden. Fine. I'm just really getting sick of this. It used to be that sci-fi was criticized for doing, you know, humans that look funny and things that weren't really all that alien looking. And we've gone 180 degrees and gone just like, let's think of what the most ridiculous shit we can think of for these environments and do that. Right, you're you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right about that. I, I do agree with that. Okay, let's kind of discuss the plot A. We'll call it plot A. Of why we have to go out and explore the planet. Okay, let's talk about this mission planning. Once again, JoJo is the most rational fucking person on this ship. Now, they're playing her up. We're obviously supposed to think, wow, she's a psychopath. But a full recon team makes sense. Tilly and the acting captain do not make sense. Like she said, why are you to assume that they're going to be friendly? Why wouldn't you take more than two people? Furthermore, why would you even take the thing that you need repaired? You've established you just need rubidium to fix it. Just go and and try to get the rubidium. Don't take the thing for them to fix. Mm-hmm. When you know that you're displaced in time. Which was their plan. Saru says we'll go barter for the rubidium, right? Yeah, that was the plan, but they took it with them. And that was what gave it away that they were from the past. Way to blend, guys. By the way, doesn't Jojo outrank Saru? Why is he ordering her around? He's a commander, she's a captain. She was a captain in Starfleet. He would be captain had he not hit the pause button on that conversation. This doesn't bother anybody else, just me. Uh, her her actual rank is definitely ambiguous, which is annoying. Um, but they don't really seem to know what the org chart looks like in Starfleet anyway in in Discovery. So I'm just going to forget that. Well, Saru calls her a commander, which right. is is dumb. I mean, if you want to say that she's technically not reinstated in Starfleet, that she's just an advisor, then I guess you could. But uh, I mean, Section Thirty One members are Starfleet officers, and they hold ranks. And if you brought her out of retirement as a captain, you wouldn't bust her down to a commander. Mm-hmm. But is she still in person? Well, yeah, she is. I don't know. Um, going on the assumption that Georgia is a commander, the fact that Saru is functioning as acting captain means he can order around everybody. So, But we shouldn't be going on the assumption that she's a commander. She's not. A- okay. I guess that's they're going to they- retcon that she's a commander. Fine. I'm sorry, man. I'm not pissed at you, Ward. <laughs> She's tracking bits of Leland all over the ship, which seems like a really bad idea when bits of Leland are going to include sentient nanobots. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we yeah. don't take her on the away mission. And by the way, I liked it when she got there and they're, you know, all being held at gunpoint. She's like, oh, did I interrupt a uh, diplomatic moment? <laughs> that's, that's what she called diplomacy. Yeah, it worked out real well for you. Shithead. So they they go walking. They they see this person out there, and Saru's like, oh, first contact," um, <laughs> which I just thought was ridiculous. 
you know, they have a decent conversation on the way. And I remember thinking, watching this episode, like, I wouldn't mind this conversation between Saru and Tilly if it happened somewhere else in a different situation that, that wasn't absolutely mission-critical, lives at stake. But because we were walking our asses to this settlement, uh, it's so annoying. By the way, we talked about Kelpies like they're horses. You notice how Saru's arms wave behind him like like it's a like it's a horse's tail. See, like I'm, he just like he's crop dusting all the way and just waving it. Yeah, that was what I he's fanning <laughs> off a fart every time he goes strolling down. And Discovery <laughs> must smell like ass all the time because Saru is always fanning one out. Yeah, I noticed that too. Like, oh God. they doubled down on that one, like because he did that in like in like the pilot a couple times, mm-hmm. or, or maybe like early in season one. And I was like, they can't keep this up. Like, this is just such an eyesore. By God, they've stuck to their guns on that one. But you know what? They didn't make any of the other Kelpians walk that way. Because I was looking for it in the sound of butterfly thunder. So, who here, show of hands, knew that Saru was going to shoot spikes in the bar scene? I absolutely did not. I didn't think they remembered it. Oh, see, I, I, I was waiting on it. I was like, they can't not do something like that. I wish it had been like a predator moment where it, like, it showed like Saru and was like, <sighs> he's like scanning around the room and he just like zeroes in on all of them. That would be fantastic if we got a shot from his, <laughs> through his <laughs> eyes. <laughs> and it just hits them all. So does he control those now? Because they were reflexive in the only other episode we saw them. Maybe these are threat boners 2.0. So like instead of just alerting to a threat, now they actually perceive it and engage it. We better not find out that Discovery has shuttles left. Because <laughs> if they walked all that way when they could have just taken a shuttle, they're a bunch of goddamn idiots. I have a feeling that we will not know the answer to that question now that they're all reunited, that they're going to suddenly find a cache of 32nd century supplies that they can use to upgrade and rebuild. Oh, okay. So you think we're going to see something like... um was it all good things where they see like the futuristic enterprise and it's all like beefed up? You think we're going to retrofit discovery like that? Give it a third nacelle? Maybe not to that extent where they change how it looks visually. What about this show tells you that they would not do it to that extent? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they have the stones to mess with the silhouette of the ship is the thing. Because the, the ship is a character and it's the only thing that's been consistent. You know, why didn't they spin the saucer section to break the ice off of them? That's a good question. I don't know. Like Warden said, the ship's character. We've made a point to make sure that the saucer section can spin. Uh, if you're going to ask that question, why the fuck didn't they just spore jump up into the atmosphere once they got power back? Yeah, I did wonder about that. I did wonder about that. It couldn't rotate in the ice. Well, I mean, I guess it could be argued that Stamets was at no point in any condition whatsoever to do something like that. Maybe they'll find a tartar dog. That would be wicked. So, let's talk about this timeline. Okay. So, what we know so far is there was the great STD, and it burned, and everything exploded. So, we made a point again for her to be like, I've scanned everything, there's no dilithium, which is not true. Dilithium is not as readily available as it was, and it only exists in its fragmented form. This is another reason that I hate the lack of intelligence behind any of the decisions that this crew makes. You've figured out that the lithium is, at the very least, extremely rare. And yet, when you need help fixing your radio, the first thing you do is, like, we got the lithium! Like, A, 
if they're nefarious, they're going to be like, really? Well, we're going to go take that away from you. But even if they're helpful, like, it's just not a good idea to walk into a saloon and be like, oh, you guys want gold? I got shit tons of it back in my wagon. Like, <sighs> maybe, maybe hold back a little bit of information. Yeah, doesn't make any sense. <sighs> but they walk into the saloon and, I mean, again, if you're trying to blend in, they're just doing the shittiest job. Nothing's covert about Tilly's personality, and Saru wasn't particularly good at it either. They're like, we come from many miles away, far from sky. And they're like, fuck you. We we got sensors. We know your ship crashed. Where'd you get a Starfleet ship? Oh, it's ours. And the guy's like, I don't believe in the Federation. And he's like, you will, bartender. You will become... A true believer. In both episodes now, we have run across people who believe in the Federation and believe in what it does, yet it's like the resistance in France in World War II. It's like so fragmented that, that they can't bring anything together to actually try and pull anything together Federation-like. So are we just going to keep finding people just one by one and we're just going to build a coalition as we go? Yeah. And for some reason we think that Discovery's the one to do it, even though we already know there were two other Federation ships flying around. Right. I played a video game. It was called Fallout 4, where you lived in a happy time, you and your son, and then you time travel to the future, but you end up separated from the rest of your family, and your country has fallen, but there are people who are made fun of for being idealists that want to reclaim it and you have to go from place to place and find these idealists who still believe in the values of the commonwealth and send them back to sanctuary so that you can restore some semblance of the law and order and protection that that you had back in your own timeline and then when you find your son you realize that he got to the future at a different time than you so he's already been here and he knows what it, uh, what's going on and the whole time you're dealing with these coursers who are working for a shadow agency that travel across the areas and sometimes abduct people. I'm really getting that feeling from this uh, this setup we got going. Well, I mean, we've already done Mass Effect. Why not go ahead and do Fallout? This is true. This is true. So again, I'm giving them a lot of grace because this is technically an uncharted territory. They should have the creative control to do whatever they want. But I would still like to see some internal consistency. For instance... These couriers, at least in the first episode, it literally made it out to be that they are just couriers contracted to run cargo. They are the Han Solo of this of this timeline. Mm-hmm. But somehow yeah. or another, like this guy's become like a planetary dictator. How does that happen? Definitely felt like I was watching an episode of Firefly because this was like full on space western. They even had sawed off shotgun phasers. Fuck that. The dude was wearing spurs. Yeah. <laughs> he jingled when he walked in. You're exactly right. Through the swinging saloon doors. For no fucking reason. <laughs> well, he might use them on his horse. Maybe they've tamed Kelpies enough by this point that they can actually ride them. <laughs> Look, the the Western imagery in this is just like the techno babble that Disco uses. It's paying homage to something that came before. They're like, oh, that was in Star Trek. We're going to do it. It's completely lost on them that it sort of made sense the way it was used in previous iterations of Star Trek that were more intelligent 
They said, we're doing an homage to the Westerns. Spurs are cool. I mean, everybody loves the shot of boots walking in and hearing the clank of the Spurs. I mean, that's, that's awesome. They never stopped to think, what was the point of Spurs? Do they make any goddamn sense in this situation? No, it's... it's... I don't understand uh, why we had to double down so much on the Western. We were obviously trying to create kind of a lawless or at least very loosely lawed area, right? Willie, what do you think is the structure in this universe? It seems to me like there's some kind of coalition, a federation, if you will, that basically controls the resources, right? And they are, they're kind of the gatekeeper for these things. And so if Planet X needs whatever those miners needed, the only way they can get it is through a contract through this central hub. Like in the first episode, it made them just seem like cargo runners. In this one, it makes it seem more like a Roman tax collector, right? Zorba had purchased the trade route to that planet, and he could extract whatever he wanted to out of that planet to whatever his desire was. Well, you've heard of the Dilithium rule, right? The person who has the Dilithium makes the rules. Makes the rules. <laughs> And so that that seems to be the way it's set up. There is apparently still a Federation out there. There are no Klingons, at least not yet. There's Cardassians, Tellarites, um, Garbonites. So we have all the same trappings of the same universe that we're used to. There's still some kind of governing body, but that governing body is no longer the Federation. I guess when the burn happened, there was a power vacuum and ISIS moved in. Mm-hmm. Just some kind of sci-fi game or sci-fi movie you've seen where there's like a loose group of people trying to hold it all together. But for the most part, it's just every man for himself out there. And apparently these couriers have intricate working knowledge of time travel. Well, I think everybody has knowledge of time travel because of the temporal temporal wars. wars. I think it's still fresh enough in history. That's fair. I don't know. Warden, you, you agree with that? In broad outline, yeah. I think that whatever happened with the burn thing, it took out most of the dilithium. And then you've got a situation where suddenly you don't have the resources to maintain the big multi-system empires. So they break down and you've got what seemed to be mostly like the Andorians and Orions. They're teaming up to, you know, corner the market, not necessarily for the good of all, It's more of a merchant cartel than it is a government. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I agree with with the Orions and and Dorians being uh, the ones sitting on top of the resources. To me, they looked more like hired muscle. That could be. But I I completely agree with what you said about a merchant cartel. I get the impression that they're the ones with the dilithium, so they're the only ones that can make the interstellar travel. Right. You know, if we do find out that places like Vulcan and Earth and more quote-unquote civilized areas of the galaxy are still there, then I'm sure those courier routes are potentially more heavily monitored. And mm-hmm. But out on these fringe systems, I think that uh, Zara even said in this that uh, everything you don't produce, you get from me. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of power. Mm-hmm. It becomes almost like a, like a drug cartel kind of power that they can wield. Do you guys think that they're going to tie together the burn with whoever's pulling the strings behind this agency that's running these exchanges? It had to have been intentional. An element 
or a metal or a material of some kind is not just going to explode all at once, all on its own. In real life, I mean, no. In real life. But look. Yeah, this is discovery. Don't hang your hat on the science wouldn't make sense. That's true. Maybe maybe there was a second beacon of Kalesh, and when it went off, it overpowered all the dilithium and blew it all up. Blow it up! Blow it back to Kalesh! <laughs> But I agree with you. I think it was intentional. I almost wonder if there's some behind-the-scenes group of people that came together after the Gorn ripped a hole in subspace or whatever and was like, look, we got to slow down the flow of information and the ability to for time crystals to make it everywhere. And the only way to do that is by basically taking away warp capability for everyone but the people we want to have it. That would violate the Prime Directive. It would, but, I mean... Why, why do we give a shit about that? Sounds like the kind of thing Section 31 or maybe an artificial intelligence that used to run Section 31 would do. That's kind of where I, I'm getting to, that this may have been intentional and done as sort of a, the greater good is to protect the universe from ripping itself apart, so we're going to protect the greater good by sacrificing this ability for everyone to travel unrestricted from sector to sector. Right. I mean, we're going to have to set up some sort of central conflict for this season. It's going to play in somehow. It's got to. And I think a big part of it is going to be getting together all the true believers. Doing the Lando run. But there's got to be a bad guy. There's got to be the conflict. And I think the conflict is going to be the man behind the curtain. Claw. Whoever is pulling all the strings. Right. And it probably will end up being the people that engineered the burn. Yeah. Would be my guess. Anyway, just wondering what you guys were thinking. Right. So, we've talked about the Spurs. Yes. We haven't talked about the character they're attached to. <laughs> Zorba. <laughs> How you guys feel about Zorba? I wouldn't use the word subtle. I think he is probably the most two-dimensional villain I've seen in a while. <laughs> well, I think I mean one-dimensional. And and unfortunately, he did not die at the end of the episode. So I'm almost certain he's coming back because that would be the worst thing they could do. I don't think he's coming back. I think he's coming back and I loved him. He's just so damn evil. Probably has Dutch in his heritage. I don't think he's coming back, but I could be wrong. He's boring. He's he's so caricaturally evil that he's boring. I liked him. Look, I wish he had been the villain last season instead of Leland. <laughs> Leland fucking sucked. What did you like about him, Joe Bob? It wasn't Leland, it wasn't Tilly. And he had spurs. He does have those going for him. And he had a cool space gun that he used in a really stupid way. But was it a space gun or a space taser? It was a gun that could double as a taser. <laughs> Look, it didn't make any fucking sense. I'm not saying that. What about the elevator up to that saloon? I thought it was a personal transporter. It is. Obviously, it wasn't personal because it was stationary. But but they've got Chekhov's phaser. They've got the personal transporter. Just in time for everything to get repaired, which we really haven't belabored the point about the repairs and about the whole Stamets and the Jeffries tube and, and all that. I can't believe y'all didn't like Zorba. I'm still surprised. I, I thought I thought he was funny. I just thought he was kind of eye rolling. Yeah. He 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 completed the Western motif. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, wait, he needed a red sash. But it was fun. It's discovery. You can't take. I mean, you can't take any of it too seriously. And yes, he was eye rolling. Look, I ain't saying he was a great villain, but by disco standards, 
I mean, was he more eye-rolling than anything else? No. Was he less eye-rolling than everything else? Probably. Hey. He's coming back. Maybe so. Yeah, I think he's coming back. You don't send him out, uh, you know, leave him alive. You don't leave him alive, and, and he's he's nasty enough to survive. So, yeah. But see, he didn't feel that one-dimensional to me. Some of the things he said, I was like, hmm, I'd like to know more about this guy. Like when they mentioned being adrift, and he's like, look, we're all adrift together right now. I'm like, hmm. That may have been accidental, but that's actually kind of a clever line, because that's kind of what the galaxy's come to, that everybody's adrift, and they're all in the same boat. And they're like, we're an older model, and it's like, aren't we all? Yeah, and then he rides off into the sunset. Alright, y'all are not on board with the villain. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I, I don't believe that he's the ultimate villain. I could be wrong. No, he's not. He's not the ultimate villain, but I don't think he's a one-off. I don't think he's coming back. I think he's going to be a persistent irritant, or at least a, a couple episodes. You think it's stupid we call Starfleet the VJJ? <laughs> what? I mean, it's a thing that happens with language. I just think I'm it's... That. I think what he actually calls them is the Vajraish. Yeah. But it's short for the Federation. Like I said, it's a thing that happens with language, but it's a thing that happens with language because society breaks down. Right. These people know about time travel and, and quantum slipstream drives. Society has not disintegrated to that point. Well, and in the same sentence that he calls them, the JJ, I don't remember exactly what the line was, but Giorgio was like, oh, so you have education. That's Latin, darling. <laughs> Apparently our Captain Zorba's an educated man. Oh, I really hate him. <laughs> By the way, he comes in and he's like, hey, this is our friends from the USS Discovery. By the way, I checked. We have no record of your ship in our database. I'm like, well, no, how do you know it's a Discovery? But, okay, whatever. Well, he, he'd gone over and scanned the ship. He scanned the ship and it, it came back as USS Disco? Have they got their transponder on? Well, it's painted right on the frickin' hull. He doesn't have a Kelpian to see that, though. <laughs> no, he's got a hull repair camera. Oh, wait, that is true. Fair enough. I did think it was funny when he's like, you got 72 lines on board. They're like, we've got 88. Our casualties count. And he's like, all right, whatever. <laughs> so apparently we lost, what, about 40% of our crew, I guess? Because didn't we say 140 at first, and now we're down to 80-something? Yeah, between people who either were, were lost in the last battle and people who presumably also could have just decided to stay on the Enterprise. So, there has been attrition. So, let's let's wrap up. All right. Back on the ship. We're trying to fix the EPS conduit. And even though we've identified which one is the problem, we're just going to let Stamet and, a, you know, Reno that's on Valium fix it together, I guess. I guess you could say that... Shipwide communications weren't working, so maybe nobody knew. But yep, they were on the buddy system. Except Culber knew exactly where to find them, and Non knew exactly where to find them. So, well, once again, they forget what they said in the previous scene. That's R. You're right. <clears throat> the whole point of this scene was so Reno could tell Stamets that he doesn't have to be everything to everybody, and to get some fun interactions with Reno and Stamets. Reno's I guess the best character we got going now. Hey, you may get your wish, though. She may be a regular now. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> and to get some more Stamets and Culver scenes, which they're fine. 
as a couple. I think they're being written a lot more naturally than they were. Granted, part of that's just because the stakes are so ridiculously high now that it doesn't feel out of place for them to be a little emotional. But I still want to see some sign that they're actually being gay, other than kissing each other. But um, I, I don't hate them. And I'm glad they weren't going to draw out the, the whole deal with Culver recovering. He seems to be bouncing back from being dead fairly well. Well, that's one thing that Disco doesn't do. Other than the central plot of the season, like, most of the little side plots get resolved within one, maybe two episodes. Yeah, that is that is very, very true. Yeah, I don't think that dynamic worked well last season with the whole uh, Stamets and Colbert thing. So they're just like, all right, we're just going to go ahead and throw that out real fast. At least that's done. Because the whole Colbert walking around in his GQ suit and <laughs> talking to psychiatrists and all that, that was a little much. It just doesn't belong. Some of this stuff is fine for a drama. And I have to remind myself that the writers of Discovery clearly are trying to inject a lot of drama into this show. Maybe the three of us are not the target audience. I can promise you that the three of us are not the target audience. <laughs> so... Maybe that's what they need now. They need a little bit of drama. They need season-long arcs. And it has to be fast-paced the whole time. I still... I was fatigued from watching the final battle in the last season. Like, I mean, there was just so much going oh, on. Oh, God, yes. You know? Yeah. That was the nice thing about this episode. That's what I was going to say. This is one of the first episodes where, yes, we still had the stakes high where if we don't get this fixed, everyone's going to die. We can never have an episode where that's not the case. But it was a lot more slower paced than anything we've seen so far in Discovery. I guess I kind of appreciated that. Because the first episode was pretty fast paced. Yeah, right. Well, this is the first episode, maybe since New Eden, where there were scenes that actually had a little bit of time to breathe and be just two characters talking to each other. And I appreciated that. I, I liked that better about this episode. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking back to a question that I asked you guys in the first season. How one thing you could say in defense of Star Trek Discovery is it's not uncommon for Star Trek series to not hit their stride until, say, the third season or so. And I asked, is, is it fair that we're judging shows so much more and expecting them to be good right out of the gate? And, you know, I think we said yes and no, basically. that Like, yeah, those shows did have a lot bad going on in, in their first season. Sometimes the second season, it took them a while mm -hmm. to find their footing. But at the same time, you don't have this level of, of money thrown at it and, and production quality and supposed talent behind it. And it's so much more of a, of a larger, more expensive production that it's more like a movie and you expect it to be good right out of the gate. And I do think that's fair. But I got to thinking about how these season-long arcs are also a part of that. Because I think fatigue sets in across the whole season, like series to series. I was thinking about another show I watched uh, for a while, Dexter. And like I loved the first and second seasons, but the stakes were so high that you just... He got tired of doing it over and over again. I think a lot of shows fall prey to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, and I think it's worse now with the season-long arcs. The season-long arc has to be so huge that it's just hard to do that more than about three times. Yeah, it's like a standard trope of sci-fi, right? Everything has to get bigger and more explosive and more disastrous each iteration. It is star killer base just over and over and over again, right? I mean, we have to make things bigger. 
the stakes higher because we have to outdo the previous season. And I think it's even more prevalent in things like sci-fi because the technology just continues to expand. You know, you talked about it a little bit at one point last season. When you've created this technology that basically has no restrictions, it has no bounds, it can do whatever you need it to do, Mm -hmm. then how do you write a compelling plot hurdle? And so maybe that's what they were doing with this whole the lithium burn where they were kind of making it where the old rules no longer apply. You know, I made the joke about needing some spice. That was one thing that Dune did reasonably well. There was this technology that could be used to do these things, but the resource which powered it was so rare and so sought after that it wasn't a practical use of it. So they've kind of done that with dilithium here. You can't get your hands on that resource. And so maybe that will create some compelling plot elements and conflicts. Uh, And and so we're going to have to get creative with the ways that we do things. They've done a big technology nerf. Yeah, you've introduced resource scarcity. Unless we're going to utilize the spore drive to get around the dilithium thing. Right. which, Which I would not put past Discovery at all. Oh, no, that's exactly where they're going. Even with that, though, at least it's only them that can travel by the spore drive. For now. For now. Yeah, that may be how they rebuild the Federation. It may be. We'll see. I wonder about how much longer this show's going to last. I guess circling back, I think that when you do standalone episodes, that's a big part of why it took older series longer to find their footing. But I think it also adds to the longevity of it, because then you don't have to have these emotionally taxing season-long arcs. You can just do episodes. We've had two big season-long arcs. If this season's going to be another battle to save everybody everywhere, I don't know. I don't think you can keep going bigger and bigger without even the lowest end of the audience not being like, okay, this is this has gotten fucking yeah. stupid. I feel like, and obviously, if you're haven't picked up on the fact that we're huge TNG nerds, then I don't know how you've missed that yet. But like, TNG was a crew, three dimensional crew, just out on assignment. And you just, you experienced what they experienced as they went. To your point, that's what gave the show longevity, right? Because sometimes the stakes were high. Sometimes it was a boring diplomatic mission. It wasn't always balls to the wall, not enough. With the exception of maybe this episode, this show has just really never slowed down. And something can be said for making it a quote-unquote page turner. Like you want to see what the next thing that's going to happen is. But at the same time, like, you don't because you know that, okay, well, the next episode is going to have some other catastrophic extinction-level event that we're going to have to avert. Right. It's actually one of the reasons, if we really want to talk about it, that I don't watch anything besides, like, little 22-minute sitcoms now. Like you said, everything's almost emotionally taxing. Sometimes I just want to kick back and just watch an episode of something that I don't have to think about. And if I missed parts of it, it doesn't matter. Because in the next episode, you can just pick right back up where you left off, you know? But I kind of want to disagree slightly with something you said. In TNG, they didn't have low stakes all the time. A lot of time, it's the boring diplomatic mission that turns out to not be so boring. But the thing is, is even if they had high stakes, they were 
localized high stakes. They didn't have these galaxy-spanning things going. There were only a couple times that they did that. Other than that, it was it was that planet. It's very high stakes for that planet. But the Federation is going to continue. Right. Yeah. But that creates dramatic tension and, and interest. I guess that's what I meant. The only thing I remember where it was like, like literally all life could die out was uh, the finale. Um, all good things, yeah. All good things. And I feel like that's that's more on the level of the stakes right. of Discovery every season. Sometimes every episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yes. You're, yes. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's exhausting. I feel like when you do these serialized shows... If you're going to do it well, you need to know the end point when you start. Yeah, right. Like um, Game of Thrones, the books, there was a plan for the end. And that plan was there for the the showrunners to make the show through part of it. So it felt like Mm -hmm. you knew the ending you were driving to. Now they ran out of source material and consensus is they pretty much fucked it up. Didn't so much stumble across the finish line as just fall on their face and never really get there. You know, for another example, in Star Trek, DS9 was really one of the first shows on television to start to move toward a season-long arc. And it was the Dominion War that started it. Mm -hmm. And basically, that was the arc. And when that arc was completed, the show was over. It didn't end until the finale of the show. Um, The Marvel movies, because they knew where they were going with it, Pretty early on, it's been great, but I know I kind of feel like Jesus Christ. How do you, you know? Where do you go from there? Right. And I think it's going to get to that point with Discovery. It's like God. What are we going to do next? Really, we're going to, you know, another season that's universe at stake multiple times through there. We go through this arc and we fix it. And I think the serialized format kind of shortens the lifespan of some of these shows. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no problem with season arcs. I think it's cool. I think it makes the show interesting. But kind of what you were saying. I like it when they do it where it feels like they really do know where they're going at the end. So that, you know, you have an adventure on a planet somewhere. And then there's one tag or one moment that's like, oh, that applies it. It's been so long since I watched it. But I remember, especially early seasons of NCIS were good at this. Where while you were watching the season, you didn't even realize what the arc was. And then toward the end of the season, you're like, oh, that stuff's all linked together. We've said this so many times. The idea, though, is that you have stories that stand on their own. And then there's element there that links them all together. Right. So that's an interesting conversation. I enjoyed that. But let's let's go ahead and bring it back around because we're at the end of the episode now i think really basically the only thing we got to talk about is we tractor beam it up out of the ice we get power back and we don't know if it's going to be enemy ship or not we got weapons so tokyo reese is like weapons hot captain acting captain whatever the fuck (laughs) you you want to shoot them what are your orders man i can shoot them i'm ready but Saru decides to hail them well they hailed them yeah he decides to receive their hail whatever you however you say that he answers the phone. Answer the hail, yes. And who do we see? It's Mike. 
Old Mikey. Archangel Michael. Mikey Burnham, who made one loop on her weave every day that she'd been there so she could keep up with how many days it's been since she landed. Okay, see, <laughs> you make that joke and it's funny because that is exactly what they're going to do. <laughs> you realize that those dreadlocks are going to be the clock that the writers use in all the flashbacks they're going to give us. Her hair will be longer and longer each time. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually kind of intelligent when you think about it, because you'll be able to immediately tell where in the past year we are mm. by how many links are in that the weave. True. Yeah. But I guarantee you that, that that's why that's there, is that's going to be That'll be a, the tether. <laughs> yeah, that'll be the tether. <laughs> oh, I assume she's on Detroit's ship, what do you think? One would assume, yes. Yeah, I would think so, too. As opposed to a Starfleet vessel. I would assume that that's Book's ship, but I don't think that that includes it from being a federation. She's commanding. She's she's actually an admiral now, Admiral Burnham. Mm, that's a fair point. You know, um, I do think she's a good actress. I didn't necessarily believe it in that first season. I hated the way that they handled her character in the first season. She was the harbinger of death in the first mm-hmm. season. But like, she seems so damn happy then to in see the second all of them. Season, she was a teenager in love. Well, I said that, you know, by the end of season two, I liked her pretty much except for when she was with Ash. Mm-hmm. Anytime she was with Phoenix, it was fucking awful. It was terrible. Right. I think there's a lot of good actors in this show than they do the best with what they're given. I, I don't think they're given a chance to be great in this show yeah. on a lot of episodes. Oh, yeah. I think I've just about come around on Burnham. I think I'm okay with her as, as the protagonist now. I hated her the first season. Right. That was abundantly clear. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't necessarily like her for the second season. And don't get me wrong, let's not overstate this. I'm not that attached to her, but I I guess I actually care what happens to her. I I can get behind following her as a protagonist now much more than I ever could in the first two seasons. So they're doing something right. I don't know. I mean, you guys agree, disagree? I, I'm right there with you. Um, yeah. If there's a season five, maybe about then, um, they'll have a halfway tolerable show by then. But, you know. I think she's a good actress. I, I've never thought that she wasn't. I don't think she was really given some of the best material to work with. She did the best that she could. Well, for a little while, I wondered if she was a good actress or not. I've never seen The Walking Dead. I'd never seen her in anything, so I wasn't sure. But, But my question is not about, do you think she's a good actress? It's, How do you feel about her now as a character? Are you invested a little bit in her? Well, I'm at least intrigued as of the last year. How about that? Yeah, she is definitely one of the characters that has shown development. So, if nothing else, she's at least interesting. Are you saying Linus hasn't shown development? I mean, (laughs) you don't remember that time that he had a rhinoceros virus and sneezed on not Spock? But then we got to see him grow until he was playing... The opposite game with the crew. Where he was hatched ready. Didn't Stamet say that in this episode, by the way? Yes. I hatched ready? Yes, he did. So that's just entered the lexicon of the... Yep. I guess. It absolutely has. Hmm. I caught that too, yeah. The thing about Discovery that bothers me the most right now, we spend a lot of time on this show talking about what Starfleet is and what the Federation is. Oh God, we do. And I'm really, really, really looking forward to the hypothetical future in which they start showing what Starfleet is and the Federation is. Because 
really not seeing it. Well, it it kind of reminds me of the Star Wars prequels, the way they handled Obi-Wan and Anakin's relationship, where they keep saying, I love you, you were like a brother to me, we're best buddies. And yet, every time that they were around each other, you're like, why the fuck do you like each other? <laughs> it's a whiny little shit that just complains about everything you do, and you're like this surly, grumpy bastard that's obviously annoyed by him. Like You can tell us over and over and over that you're buddies, and for that matter, you can tell us over and over and over that you're so in love with Padme. Mm-hmm. I love you so much. I am so in love with you. <laughs> but like, I ain't buying it from what I fucking see with my own eyes. That's how I feel about the Federation. It's more believable that he hated sand between his toes than he loved Padme. (sighs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. So where are we headed from here? I know we've kind of talked about predictions throughout this episode, so I guess I should just ask, is there anything that you guys want to add? I think we are gearing up for a a catch-up tour of the galaxy where we're going to stop in on everybody we can think of that's been cool in Star Trek and really try to touch on all the nostalgia that way by showing how things have changed. A whole lot of, hey, audience, remember this? Pretty much, yeah. Remember this? Yeah. I think you're right about that. Actually, I've got a pretty good uh, feeling that I'm right because I just looked again at the list of titles for the season and I see one that makes me want to cry. So you fucking cheater! You just can't even wait, man. I guess you did spend two seasons trying not to give anything away. All I have are titles. All right, fuck it. Give us the title that made you cry. <sighs> Shit, you're gonna hate me. <laughs> it's <clears throat> Unification Three. Hmm. Mm, indeed. <laughs> I hate you, and I'm done with this show. <laughs> <laughs> It literally says the number three in it. Yes. Unification Roman numeral three. So when you said it it made you want to cry, you mean like because it's so terrible? Yeah, because they're going to take one of the iconic two-parters from TNG and they're just going to discover it. Motherfucker. Are we going to have Burnham do in 40 minutes what? Sarek and Spock couldn't do in 200 years and unite the Vulcans and Romulans? I'm wondering if it's not going to be an episode where it's a fait accompli. It's already happened. And they're going to have to deal with... (laughs) They're going to have to deal with... A bunch of emotional Vulcans? No, no. Some sort of conspiracy by the logic extremists. Because we have to bring the logic extremists back. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think you may have aced that. It'll be a faction of the Vulculans. Vulculans, yeah. Well, I did think it was suspicious that we did not see any Vulcans or Klingons in these two episodes. You know what I hope the burn is? I hope that the goddamn bomb in Kronos finally went off. <laughs> Everybody had just forgotten about it. They're like, what happened was 150 years ago, Kronos just exploded. See, no one knew it, but apparently someone had put a bomb in the center of the planet. And because Kronos is such a fucked up goddamn planet, something about it, its makeup, 
created a radiation wave that ionized the dilithium all across the galaxy. And Burnham's going to be like, I knew that we betrayed our principles and we went to Kronos and did that. That was the day we put the dagger in the heart of the Federation and it just took 900 years to kill him. Actually, I don't hope that last part. I do hope that Kronos blew up at some point because of the bomb in there. I think they finally built a ship that can hit warp 10. And when it did, it caused a chain reaction overload that just split out. The dilithium just fried everywhere. Well, they're already, they've already broken warp 10 because they have quantum slipstream. I thought the old, uh, warp, the old lithium warp cores were limited. They could never hit it. Also, though, for a while there, it was just translation for really, really fast. Right. Then I thought they came back and tried to kind of retcon it to where warp factor 10 would be like the equivalent of being everywhere all at once. So that's why you were never able to hit warp 10. And you would get incrementally higher, like warp 9.99. Yeah, the theory was that if you plotted speed and energy required to achieve that speed, you've got an asymptote at 10, where essentially the energy required is infinite. In any of Well, I think it'll be interesting to see where they take this. Like I said, I think we're going to get a Firefly reboot. There's going to be this ragtag group of people flying around doing these little uh, little odd job missions and things that are obviously building towards a bigger event, like reconstructing the Federation. I think we're going to spend a lot of this season just piecing things together. Now, I'm sure they obviously will have to have some kind of season-long thread that, that weaves through it. I don't know what that will be. Um, I hope they do more world-building and establishment of things. Yes. I actually find the idea of a focus on rebuilding the Federation. It sounds refreshing. It's an arc about building something that can be positive, but you can still have drama in there because there could be something that comes up and threatens it, so you have to deal with that threat, but ultimately it's working toward building something rather than preventing the end of the universe. My guess would be that, similar to those lines, that this season will be more about rebuilding and connecting the peoples that are still here in the 32nd century and that it hopefully will it will be more episodic in nature sometimes they'll have more opportunities to almost have a star trek series you go to this planet to convince them to join and there's some sort of relatively minor diplomatic issue that you have to solve or uh, something's about to destroy this planet and if you save it, you can recruit them to, to the Alliance. And I think that towards the end of the season will be where it is revealed who's pulling the strings in the galaxy and who the real enemy is. Mm. I just hope that whatever that threat is... The Borg are everywhere! <laughs> I was just about to say, whatever a threat is, I hope it is something original, or at least done something interesting with something old. I, I'm fully expecting them to do, like we said, the, hey audience, remember this game? But I really hope that they don't lean on that for the plot. I have no more hope. <laughs> Everything that we've come up with tonight is going to be better than what they're going to do. <laughs> You're absolutely right about that. So, I've given up hope. That's a good point, Warden. Because each series of Star Trek 
pretty much created its central antagonist. Now, I didn't watch much Enterprise, but like, of course, everything in TOS is created from scratch. Uh, you know, for TNG, you probably have to say the Borg. Borg Q. He became less of an antagonist, and I don't know what the word is. I need antihero. Yeah, an ally in a weird way. And then Deep Space Nine created the Dominion, the Jim Hadar, the Founders. Mm-hmm. Voyager, of course, they created the Kazon for the first half of it, who sucked. And they're like, they suck. Oh, let's do the Borg again. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the antagonist there was almost... Distance. The distance, yeah, from home. And then, like I said, I don't know... Uh, I think Enterprise is where the Zindi come from, right? So yeah, so that's a really good point, Warden. Um, Every series up to this point has created from scratch a new central antagonist that has been, for the most part, I would say a success. I mean, the Borg are a great addition to canon. The Dominion are a great addition to canon. Kazan, Zindi, they're, they're fine. So yeah. We'll see if Discovery is willing to do something on their own. Because they, they haven't been willing to go out and create anything new. I mean, I guess the Spore Drive. But I felt like that was an unmitigated disaster. And, you know, Picard definitely wasn't willing to go out on a limb and do anything new. We're not even close to being done with the Spore Drive yet. We've just entered a situation in which the Spore Drive puts Discovery in the center of everything. So, they're going to be leaning hard on that. Oh, yeah. Well, I wasn't implying that they were not going to okay. make the Spore Drive central, but I don't know. I guess we can fight the Jesuits, but I don't want to talk about the Spore Drive. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm wondering if your joke from last season might not come back. The Great Kelpie Empire. Maybe they engineered the burn. That would be cool. They've had 900 years. It only took them a week to commandeer a Baul ship and learn how to fly fighters. Maybe the last remnants of the Baul <laughs> went to a planet far away and then found a way to destroy the Dilithium throughout the galaxy uh, so that the Kelpie they were protected. wouldn't be able to come get them. Yeah. Well, it would certainly be an interesting situation for Saru to deal with Kelpians being the heavies. Because mm-hmm. that's not how he left them. Not only that, but Saru and Burnham having to deal with a situation that they created. Exactly, yeah. Being the reason that everything was destroyed. Right. Which I'm assuming, or let me say, there's a good chance that, that it's going to be something like that, right? That mm-hmm. they will have inadvertently, you know, lit the fuse for the big burn. I can see that happening. They created a future that caused the Federation to collapse by trying to save all life. All right, gentlemen. So what's our next episode, Warden? The title of episode three is <laughs> People of Earth. People of Earth. All right. Yep. We're starting our tour. Yep. Now, it could be Terralesium, though. They are people of Earth. Well, I mean, people of Earth are all throughout the galaxy. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, take us out. Well, all right, this is <clears throat> Biblio Warden, Joe Bob, and Mr. Willie signing off. Why didn't they take the opportunity when Pike was standing there by that stupid photon torpedo? 
why didn't they let him disarm it? Like, you know, sir, we've got some radiation suits. You can put them on, but it's not going to protect you from that kind of explosion. He's like, I don't care. And then it blows up and it, it cooks him. And that's how he goes to the boo box. Wouldn't that have been better than him yes. just standing I mean, there at the window watching Admiral Doctor vaporize? But weren't they kind of hemmed in? I thought it had been established in original series that he got his injuries on a, basically a, a, a training run. Didn't you fucking listen to me last week when I was talking about retcons? Well, yeah, but I mean... It could have just been... We never saw that happen in TOS. That's just what the doctors at the Starbase told them happened. So it could have just been that, that that was the cover story that they used rather than saying, oh, I was defusing a Section 31 torpedo that was fired at us by an AI that was in control of everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, okay. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Fight and Fury performed by R.J. Wills used under license from Shutterstock. How are you, gentlemen? I am lovely. Fantastic. How are you, Warden? I am alright. Well, I gotta get you in... You gotta get in a good mood. I need more cackles. Okay. I gotta have more cackles. I got a fever. <laughs> and the only prescription <laughs> is more cackle. I've been doing myself a disservice. And everyone on this podcast... If I didn't cackle my ass out of this thing, <laughs> I don't know, if I didn't cackle the hell out of this thing. You know what? You know what? Maybe I'll just leave and come back and lay down the cackle track later. I think you should stay and lay down that cackle track right now with us <laughs> together. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I'm D. Bruce Dickinson. You stick with me, you'll be wearing a golden diaper, baby. What does that even mean? Never question Bruce Dickinson. God damn. <laughs> he speaks for all of us. That's that uh that scene is better than this show. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> oh, maybe I should pull up the old memory alfalfa. <laughs> uh, uh this episode has a name and I don't fucking know what it is. Um Far from home. Oh, fuck, yeah. I should have remembered the Spider-Man. Spider-Pig, Spider-Pig does whatever (laughs) Spider-Pig does. (laughs) I really need to go back and watch all the Simpsons. (laughs) Right now I'm on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That's that's our nighttime show. Alright, well, given how long it took you to watch the Marvel movies, you need to set aside a decade for that. Ouch. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, that's a lot of content. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd have more time if I wasn't having to watch this stupid fucking show all the time. I didn't make you watch this stupid fucking show all the time. Warden? <laughs> Be glad you're not Let's editing. just make it clear. Nobody is making anybody watch any stupid fucking shows. Just want to point that out there. I have morbid curiosity at this point. <laughs> I am also morbid. You are. Um, it's like season season one was when the engineer radio back train was accelerating far beyond <laughs> its normal designs. Season two was when they tried to throw the brakes and it and the and the uh, the lever broke off. 
Mm-hmm. And then season three is where we see where Wiley Coyote has placed a barrel of dynamite on the end of the tracks. Yep. It's time it's time to go get Leroy. <laughs> Are you accusing me of manipula of uh not manipulating? I'm saying that you Jesus have a large personality Christ. and you're very organized. Monopolizing the conversation. I just totally fucking went blank on that no, one. No. This could be a I am specific an ugly episode. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm not saying you do that. I'm saying that God damn it, this this was gonna be to sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh Oh okay then. Sorry, I'm just um let me get through my my notes. I just wanna Well look, we need to get the show on the road. It's supposed to drop below freezing tonight and uh I don't want the parasitic ice to overwhelm me. Oh, freezing temperatures, eh? Uh-huh. This but man, is, this, this is February weather, not October. This is totally October weather. <laughs> this is as October as it gets. I'm not used to large polar fronts coming down through the Midwest and tickling my taint like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I'm ready. All right. All right. One more sip of Pepsi. <sighs> what shall we talk about? <laughs> All right, well, you just give me the green light. What was that fucker's name? What? The the Nazi that you just yeah, like? I don't, I, don't, it... I don't think I even know. Don't did he even have a name? Herr Tolt. Herr what? Herr Tolt. Tolt. Herr Tolt. T O. Just say it in fucking English. Mister Tolt. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. That Mr. Was funny, Death, Warden. I think is how it yeah. translates. But <laughs> it's like a bo- it's like a Chris Farley skit. I am El Nino. It's his name, <laughs> which in English means the Nino. For those of you who <laughs> no hablo español, El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> Oh man, that's twice we've hit SNL and we haven't even started the fucking show. <laughs> that's right. It's gonna be a good night. <laughs> well, he's giggling already. Excellent. Oh now, brown cow. Let me uh, take a quick glance over this. Glance over this what? Uh, the teaser and Act One, just a. Just tickle my brain. So, you mean the whole time you were bitching about me reading my notes, you could have instead been reading this summary that you're now reading after I finished and I'm ready to go? No. That about right? The whole time Warden was bitching about your notes, I could have been reading this. What the fuck? (laughs) 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 Alright, gentlemen. Shall we? We only have until nightfall. It gets dark out there early. Alright, everybody shut up. I'm going to try the intro. It's too bad they didn't crash land during daylight savings time. Bring us in, Joe Bob.